Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Christina Newland. And I'm Campbell I. Campbell. On the show this week, Jonathan Glazer returns with an adaptation of Martin Amos's The Zone of Interest. Being a black writer is a thankless task in American fiction, and I spoke to the writer-director called Jefferson and the star Jeffrey Wright. And on Film Club, blackness is a powerful commodity in Bamboozled. All coming up on Truth in Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Oh, welcome, welcome back to you both. Um, regular listeners will probably know a little bit about who you are but uh do you want to do the kind of obligatory uh who you are and what you do and what you've been up to christina sure yeah i'm christina newland i'm a regular contributor to little white lies i'm the lead film critic at the i newspaper and uh, a contributing editor at empire oh yes congratulations on that uh contributing editor um at empire role that's very exciting for them and you know for you but mostly for them <laughs> oh thank you yeah, no, it's great. It's always great to work with that team. They're all so lovely. And um, yeah, it's always exciting to get that kind of access with interviews and stuff as well. Yeah, whenever it's Empire, like, like the doors suddenly flying open. <laughs> Just going to say, we're no slouch on the Little White Lies podcast either. These are two Oscar nominees <laughs> that we have on this week. The legendary Jeffrey Wright has joined us. But yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm also a regular contributor at Little White Lies. I freelance in all sorts of places. Very mercenary that way. Um <laughs> Most recently, you can maybe find my writing at Vulture. Been writing a bit about animation for them, as Layla has poked fun at me for in the past. <laughs> and yeah, now I'm here again. <laughs> it's light-hearted ribbon. You're doing the Lord's work, kind of making sure that the landscape of animation doesn't just get reduced down to the Super Mario Brothers films, and it's actually taken seriously as an art form. I mean, like, yes, thank goodness you're out there. I mean, we were going to talk about Oscar snubs, so I've got words to say about Super Mario now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm lying, I'm lying. Not a huge amount of surprises, I would say, when it came to the Oscar snubs. I would say I did get quite a lot of DVDs in the post and for your considerations for Super Mario Brothers. So they did they did dream big with that one, at least. But if it, for you guys, were there any like massive snubs, any big overlooks? I mean... I think it was more or less as expected. I think um, there were some some peculiar choices, I think. 
But I think the word snob has been broadly misapplied on, you know, in, in kind of film discourse and like Twitter discourse, particularly in the past few weeks. I did think it was strange that Barbie went in for adapted screenplay, not original screenplay, and Killers of the Flower Moon then didn't receive a nomination for adapted screenplay, given that it was based on a David Grant book. But I guess that's a that's a fairly minor quibble, all told. I mean, I, un- I understand that some people were disappointed with the Greta Gerwig uh, not getting a Best Director nom. I didn't see the massive deal, given that there's 10 Best Pictures and five Best Directors. It happens. But the Margot Robbie one really did puzzle me because it was kind of framed as being like, what a terrible, uh, you know, act of anti-feminism that this woman wasn't nominated. Like, as if they'd like reduced the number of best actresses. (laughs) Like, it's like, no, it was still five. It was still five. We haven't taken it away from the gender as a whole. Baffling. We're not doing best actress this year. (laughs) 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 It's like the way, that's the way people react. Margot Robbie has brought shame upon us all and we're just cancelling the best actress. No, no, I mean, she's, she's wonderful. She's great in the part. She's perfect for the part. Um, she's obviously a really like interesting figure in Hollywood generally that she's a creative producer. I think she's great. I think sunshine's out of her ass, frankly. But like, this is a year that we have Lily Gladstone nominated. It's the first Indigenous woman to ever be nominated for an Oscar. And, and it looks like it's, it's quite likely that she'll win for Killers of the Flower Moon, I think, in that category. And then you've got, you know, great actors like Divine Joy Randolph in The Holdovers as well. So if we're talking about like good things for intersectional feminism, then we're talking about a pretty good lineup here. And Margot Robbie is going to be fine. She's a movie star, you know, she's, she'll be fine. Yeah, um, it, it did seem strange to me that like straight out of um, as soon as the talk about awards season when it came to Killers of the Flower Moon started, there was ultimately this discussion of like the, the hubris of Lily Gladstone that she was going to campaign for Best Actress and like, you know, that's aiming way too big and like she should be going in for Best Supporting Actress, which, you know, because people do scan these categories a bit, she's definitely the lead actress in that. It does seem like a really lovely result that not only was she nominated, but I... I but in my mind, I think she's like the favorite now. Yeah, I mean, I think the performance in and of itself, and that's really all that should matter. But unfortunately, we know that, you know, there's there are a lot of politics around or politicking around, you know, Oscars and Oscar season as well. The performance alone is enough to get her that plaudit. She's incredible in that part, like really kind of like Renee Maria Falconetti in a silent film, kind of really incredible, like radiant close ups of her. The stuff that she's doing is sort of next level. But there's also the fact that the Academy Awards do have a long and checkered history with the treatment of Native Americans. Hollywood has a bad history with the treatment of Native Americans. And so given the Oscars general push towards righting some of those historical wrongs, I can see that being a a smart sort of political choice or, or a smart kind of choice for them in an outward looking way or the optics as well, which is cynical, but I think a factor. When you when you said uh, first Indigenous actress to be nominated, I, I remembered that. Didn't the lead for Roma get nominated in like 2018? But Mex, Mex, uh, Tico. Mexican, so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, you're right. No, no, no. I mean, this is like a, <laughs> like a minor thing. I'm just, I was just thinking about it now, but it's just like interesting how the arc of the Academy is kind of, kind of curved towards you know like there's a balancing of the scales going on which is quite nice which is why i've not really felt too sore about anything it seems that everything in there is pretty good to me like we've had pretty bad years recently in terms of best picture nominees like this is the strongest lineup that there's been in such a long time i always get quibble about the animated category but even that's really good this year minus the obligatory pixar film that's made its way in there because well, the, with uh, the animation category, I think they basically they opened it up to a wider pool of voters 
outside of the animation industry in about 2017 and then it just kind of it was already bad but then it just got worse <laughs> from that point but it was it was a pleasant surprise for me in that regard because ghibli's had nominees in there before but they've always lost to like frozen or um big hero 6 was another one and in this category like if their competition uh is actually good films like nimona i'm not i like nimona but i don't love it as much as other people do but even then if that one that's like a very um that's a bit of a statement win as well i think the only snub i can think of in that category is maybe the teenage mutant ninja turtles movie which is just like a really funny thing to get up in arms about so um <laughs> <just> like, <laughs> where's my oscar for leonardo so yeah i don't know it's just very strong overall this year i thought that actually reminded me, where's the Oscar for Leonardo? I would have liked to see him nominated, but I'm not really upset. Once again, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be fine. Like, I'm not going to be up again. Gonna be up that, I thought you also meant that. You <laughs> for said the that, turtle? I you yeah. also meant the Ninja Turtle. <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's so good. He's so good in that. Yeah, DiCaprio is good. Yeah, I mean, he's he's doing something really, I think he's at his best so, sort of when he's playing these kind of dummies, actually. And I think it just takes so much talent to to, <laughs> to direct to direct a, a, a film in which your lead actor or actress is, is you know, not that bright. <laughs> you know, to still make that compelling is, is something. Yeah, it's why uh, Charles Melton deserved the Best Supporting Actor mm, nomination. It's so not easy. In May, December. Todd Haynes is incredible and has, you know, I mean, just goes from strength to strength. And it is a shame that he didn't get nominated, to be fair. That, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just, I dislike the word snub, but it does. Yeah, he's, he's great. And May, December is an incredible ensemble cast as well. Yeah. I just wonder whether it was too difficult of kind of the, difficult to view of like the parasitic nature of filmmaking for them to kind of fully get behind this year which makes it funny that zone of interest is in there as well because that seems very uh like a lot of the sentiment i've seen around it is that it's like a repost to like how hollywood glamorizes every even the worst subject matter so it's just like funny that something like that makes it in but may december doesn't i guess because may december is more transparently about acting itself but i guess yeah we'll get on to that yeah, no, I, I do want to get on with, to that. <laughs> That's a really interesting way of looking at it. So yeah, let's get started with the zone of interest. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. We receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. The zone of interest follows German Nazi commandant Rudolf Hoss, who strives to build a dream life with his wife Hedwig in a new home next to the Auschwitz concentration camp. So, Christina, uh, you would have seen this, I guess, in Cannes quite a long time ago. I mean, how much anticipation was there for the new Jonathan Glazer? I mean, when the guy takes a decade between his film projects, there's always a lot of stuff kind of, you know, there's a lot of anticipation around that. It was probably one of my most anticipated films in Cannes. And uh, I've since seen it again. And I mean, it's a masterpiece. There's no other way around it, I think. It's um, so intelligently conceived and it's so careful in the way that it sort of marries sound and vision to give you this contrast between the um, indifference, I guess, of these monstrous people who are living on the, on the edge of Auschwitz and, you know, the horrors that are going on just beyond your purview, which you don't really ever see in the film either, which I think is really, you know, a really canny choice. So yeah, I think it's it's absolutely remarkable. And 
Glacier's just never made, he's sort of a perfect filmmaker. He's never made a bad or even a mediocre film. Every single one of his films is incredible. I agree with you. As someone who recently had to review a TV adaptation of Sexy Beast, which was awful, it made me really appreciate just what it is that he does and how clever and nuanced and like how many kind of unusual choices he makes. Please don't watch the TV remake of Sexy Beast. Sexy Beast is 85 perfect minutes. And uh, yeah, God, sorry, I should get over having been made to watch that but um yeah Campbell, I want to get to this interpretation that you've you just spoke about where you feel that this is kind of about the de-glamorization or like the de-sensationalization of the holocaust I mean, it's very it's very anti-sensational just by its craft. Like, I've been reading a lot. Just The thing with this film is that I went out of it and then I feel like I just immediately just started reading like everything I could around it because it was just so fascinating. And you can kind of feel all the seconds of those 10 years that went into the craft behind it because it's all so precise and very clinical, but not to the point where you feel detached from it. But it feels like part of the point. I've seen a lot of description of like the, ha- the setups in the house being like surveillance style cameras. And that has a very sort of cold, that has a coldness to it in a way that like when you think Holocaust drama, you can kind of sometimes you th- you think either Shoah or something a bit more sort of like uh, maudlin sometimes, frankly, like <laughs> you get like the boy in the striped pajamas, like whatever that is. And I think this is just a sort of unimpeachable way to go about it. My favorite description of it actually came from Esther Rosenfeld, who is also a writer for Little White Lies and friend of ours, and she had a really amazing comparison with Spielberg. So talking about Schindler's List and the criticisms that Spielberg picked up for the aesthetics that he was using in the depiction of the Holocaust, which have their roots in fascist filmmaking, because <laughs> a lot of Hollywood is built from the building blocks of things like Birth of a Nation and so on and so on. And she was saying that there has been thoughts that it's inherently like sensationalist to approach something like the Holocaust this way. And what this does is it dismantles that purely through its craft being completely unsensational. And she also had a really, really great comparison with the Fablemans and how Spielberg talks about in that film how he can't help himself like applying these sort of glitzy Hollywood aesthetics to even the worst subject matter. So like it's uh, all on her letterboxed review of this and it's really worth reading because I think it unlocks a lot of stuff in this film for me. Like really, really sharp. But um, beyond that, I think (laughs) it's just just purely unpleasant to watch. (laughs) I've never felt so ill just from sort of just one little contrasting edit before i think there was just a very simple cut from one thing to like a wall and i just immediately felt my stomach drop queasy making isn't it yeah it's at the same time there's this very ominous droning from um mika levi's score and the sound design from johnny byrne because i was reading an interview with him and this is where the 10 year stuff comes in because they spent so long literally measuring the distance from the camp to the house so they would get the echo and the volume of the noises of the camp right and that immersiveness feels like the wrong word because i've just been talking about how kind of stripped back and clinical it is but at the same time you're just sort of when you're in the theater you're surrounded by this sort of echoing sounds of horror um that are just out of view and it's 
uh, it feels kind of inescapable in a way that's very unsettling. You, know, def- I, I, you definitely can't say like, I, I really liked watching the zone of interest because that's just not the operative word for it. But um, yeah, I, I kind of lost, I lost the plot a little bit here. I sort of meandered into noises. No, but No, I think, I mean, the sound design's incredible and it was so amazing to see it recognized the way it was, at, you know, for Oscar nominations and for it to get a, a best director or not. I wasn't really expecting that because it is, as you say, like it's an unusual film. You know, it is it's it's paced very differently to traditional Hollywood drama uh, about the Second World War, about the Holocaust. The fact that it doesn't hold your hand, but that it, you know, if you know anything about, you know, the kind of cold, evil efficiency of Nazism, there are, you know, Rudolf Haas was a real person. He was the real architect of Auschwitz. And the amount of logistical planning that went into that is is kind of shown in in a glancing way in the film through its form. So there's a lot of kind of angular geometric shots of the setup of the house in relation to the wall of the concentration camp. At one point when he goes and meets with a with a bunch of SS officers, there's an overhead shot of them at the table kind of planning their, you know, the various kind of organizing how many crematoriums they're going to open and just this kind of mind reeling horror. But the the kind of cold logic of Nazism is almost expressed through the style of the film. And it's kind of showing you what's missing, which is, or or not showing you, but allowing you to hear what's missing from that, which is the humanity and the evil and the horror, which is happening kind of just beyond the realms of their imagination. So that kind of boxed in sense that it has, this kind of very static feeling that the, the camera has, I think it really does something to further the film's ideas about how these people's mindsets worked. It's also just very, I, don't, I wouldn't say ugly, but just very unpleasant. Just, if just in the sort of grade, like the grade is very, you know, sickly and cold and everything just feels like it just drained of life in a lot of those digital shots and then every now and then you'll get these sort of inserts that were in infrared, I think, when you had the gardeners who I believe are Polish or, or potentially Jewish as well, prisoners who were forced to work in the house. And you, there's like the infrared shot at night of them leaving food around the camp for the other prisoners. And I thought those it made those moments where it would break with um, its sort of established, like, as you said, geometric sort of approach to the house and its surroundings and these uh, Nazis, uh, that it's reserved those more experimental breaks for the actual people at the fringes of the film, uh, which I thought was, I don't know, uh, these little moments of humanity that had been otherwise absent from the rest of it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not often that a film kind of leaves me almost incapable of talking about it. I struggled a lot to sort of put my appreciation of zone of interest into words. I guess because a lot of the phrases that you like first come to, things like something being like hard to watch or, you know, just evokes the exact wrong type of film. Like we're not talking like, it's 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 got so, so little in the way of like histrionics. It's not overly emotionally manipulative. There's no clear moment of like tugging at the heartstrings and I guess the thing that I kept being reminded of was like that awful scene in Under the Skin where you know the one with the baby if you know you know where it it, it's actually like really underplayed and as a result every time you kind of for the decades afterwards think about it um it will ruin the rest of your day but yeah it I think he's very good at haunting you Glazer's work I think, yeah, and he's so confident as a, as a visual artist. Maybe that comes from his background in, in sort of music video direction and stuff, but, but about kind of really translating 
an idea through an image without needing to back it up with dialogue or be heavy handed or to underline it in a, in a really kind of overemphasized way, which I think so many lesser filmmakers have a tendency to do. Even filmmakers of the caliber of maybe a weird comparison, but I'm just thinking now like Steven Spielberg, who's incredible, obviously, but has a tendency to kind of overstate things in, 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 a, in a very traditional mainstream way. Glacier is very good at at stripping things back and for example the the kind of kind of quite strange interlude at one point where it just cuts to a bunch of really lush verdant garden shots of this beautiful garden that Hedwig the the wife of the commandant has and the question of course is through what labor through what fertilizer through what human remains is this garden so beautiful like it it is so incredibly haunting and it just it becomes it's very thought provoking without having to do very much at all there's a lot that happens just in the cut in this film which i found really striking like in the final stretches where he's in uh is it Iranianburg? uh i can't i think i've got the pronunciation wrong now and there's a moment when uh hoss just kind of stops and starts retching and that scene is like kind of cut it cuts back to the present uh, in the Auschwitz Museum and there's that and people just kind of going about their business and cleaning it like very casually and then there's just shots of thousands and thousands of shoes and crutches and immediately in that implication like I don't know it reminded me a little bit of the act of killing uh, strangely there's a moment where the perpetrator of this like ethnic cleansing I, I, if or like just the persecution of I don't a, know a if it was caste. ethnic so much as like political yeah like um, um, but yes yeah, like just kind they of were killing out. communists, weren't they? Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, my mistake. Mm. Um, it's been so. It's been ten years since I watched it. Um, Same, I but I remember. But I remember what. <laughs> yeah, I remember exactly what scene you're talking about. And it's like it's almost when he does it, it's um, performative, uh, and he has this sort of thing where it's it's almost like a. If I'm if I'm remembering it right, I remember it as being him sort of performing and just being like, "Oh, I feel so bad about everything that's happened. It makes me sick." Um, whereas the retching moment in the zone of interest uh, i'm jumping back to i had this i had the same thought but i'm jumping back to esther's piece on it as well but it's like almost like this sort of possession uh we've said so much about glazer making this very haunting film and then right at the end it sort of has not the protagonist but it has hoss having this brief moment of feeling the weight of his actions just for a second and maybe even what like the audience is feeling because i felt quite sick throughout the whole film and then it's just like just in in between these like two just the shot of him in the hallway and the shot of the hallway of the museum and i don't know glazer just says so much as christina said without having to guide us explicitly through what's happening i don't know that's just the moment that stuck with me there's there's something so interesting about the fact that so much of his job was facilitating and organizing this camp you know the, the goings-on in this camp and then it kind of cuts to these people who years and years later are maintaining you know a, a very different version of this place in ways he could have never imagined and so it's kind of this this thing where he's like kind of trapped in this this there's this moment of convergence of history or of past and present on him and there's like a kind of there's a sickliness like you say cam like it it does make you feel so queasy but it's like it's in the moral force of the film but it's also in the style where you know he's like trapped between these two staircases and he starts to retch but he can't be sick and it's like yeah there's something really powerful about that moment yeah god i mean what what more is there to say i did have a really horrifying thought just then of like what if 20 years time uh, a streaming service tries to make a mini series prequel of the zone of interest and completely misses the point but you know again i have been traumatized by the sexy beast remake 
A24 have really been um, struggling with promoting this one as well, where it's like they've been trying to do the usual social media thing of posting clips from the film. And it's just like, here's a clip of Rudolph Hoss like fishing. Uh, it's just like, be careful in the river or some like bullshit copy. And it's just like, it really kind of rubbed in like how unsellable this is, which makes the Oscar success a little bit more surprising. But yeah, it's just interesting that this film is just like so impossible to sensationalize on like any level. You can't even just like break it down to something out of context and it'd be like okay like the general response to that clip was people just going why are you doing this yeah uh, you kind of just gotta let it it's just you kind of gotta let it speak for itself um you know this is that sorry that just reminded me of that oh i did need a long lie down after that movie <laughs> very fair if there's anything that we can do um i mean obviously we're not in film marketing but it is nice to think that maybe like this critical response might go and see make people see something that all they know about is that at one point a German man goes fishing. <laughs> well, that makes it sound kind of pleasant, um, you know? So... <laughs> I know. <laughs> I remember seeing Justin Chang, at what formerly of the LA Times, did a little roundup of all the Best Picture nominees. And then what he said about Zone of Interest was that um, one of the most disturbing things about it is how easy it is to watch. So what, what Christina said just now just reminded me of that. Just because of this sort of like pleasant pastoral settler colonial environment. Sure. The, the world that was made easy for these Germans through living under the Reich and with that brief period before the war ended where they really thought that this was going to be, you know, a continuation of their worldview, I guess. And yeah, that you're right. It almost suggests something about our like our complicity or, you know, kind of makes us sort of aware of what their image of the future would have been like, which is easy right, for them. It's interesting because I think he also portrays this sort of strange culture that the Nazis had within the party where Hoss kind of comes off like moment to moment to me he came off as a little bit of like an incompetent or maybe it's just the way the actor plays him but I think a thing that people don't often talk about with the Nazi party is that it was like a kind of culture of incompetence it wasn't I feel like a thing that often comes into conversation about fascism is just like oh at least the trains ran on time like kind of thing whereas the whole civil structure was actually a mess and I feel like some of that comes across in this film as well like there's just kind of this implicit criticism that no one's getting what they like he's not getting what he wants regardless of the things that he's doing and even in the realm of his own personal success there's just like not really much glamorous about it a bit of a rogue thought which need more time but no i agree with you there i think there is always a um tendency to look back on like staggering acts of evil as also being works of genius and yeah i i and i I don't know that if you take a closer look at most of them that that has any tendency to be actually true but yeah we should get some scores on this christina do you want to go first in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect i'm tempted to go fives across the board but the enjoyment you know as ever with with you know any film that's got difficult subject matter like this um something that makes you feel physically bodily ill through the entire running time is um maybe not a five for enjoyment but certainly expectation was very you know anticipation was very very high for this being glacier having absolutely loved Under the Skin uh, and basically all his other films. And in retrospect, it didn't take much hindsight for me to immediately feel that this was something that was really, really special. So sure, why not? Fives across the board. Campbell, what about you? Honestly, the same with me. I think maybe we need to replace enjoyment with in the moment or something <laughs> because mm, uh, I agree engagement with Engagement or something that. like that. Yeah, because like I said, I, I can't recall having this kind of physical reaction to a film like this in this way before it's just it's immaculate um i think i'm probably at a three five 
again, enjoyment's a weird term for it, uh, five as well, uh, simply because I didn't see it in the sort of, uh, I didn't go to Cannes and I just heard <laughs> so many people being like, oh, it's going to destroy you. It's going to like make you kind of question whether you want to live on this earth anymore. anymore. And of course, it, it, it is a deeply, deeply disturbing thing. But yeah, I think I was, as much as I love Glazer, I was really bracing myself and It was exactly what everybody said it was. It was a horrible masterpiece. Next up, it's American Fiction. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jeffrey Wright stars as Monk, a professor and frustrated novelist who's fed up with the established profiting from black entertainment that relies on tired and offensive tropes. After taking some time to reconnect with his upper middle class family at their beach home, tragedy strikes and he finds himself under more pressure than ever. One night and several drinks in, Monk uses a pen name to write his own outlandish book of black stereotypes, which for better or for worse, proves a hit. But before we get into the film, I spoke to Cord Jefferson and Jeffrey Wright about their collaboration. I'm going to lean in occasionally. <laughs> like a crooner. Yeah. <laughs> so, start with like, there's a sort of um, African American stories, like, there's this like appetite that seems to have changed over the time. You've sort of got Sidney Poitier as like this very respectable face of it. Um, black Expectation in the gangster movies of the 90s were quite into like black trauma at the moment. Um, do you think like the sort of things that are popular say something about the era in which they're made i mean certainly there's 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 waves of trends in hollywood i think that sort of I think that more than anything that suggests that hollywood is just into sort of like reproducing what has worked in the past mm -hmm. and so i think that you know a lot of people ask me you know why do you think that these kinds of stories keep getting made why do the slavery stories keep getting made why do the sort of like inner city poverty, poverty stories keep getting made and i've got like several answers for that but but I think one of the main ones, right, is that Hollywood is just into replicating success. And so sort of the, it's the same reason why we're seeing it's the same answer why are comic book movies keep getting made. Why do buddy cop movies keep getting made, right? Because there's sort of a history of success and it's a risk averse industry. And so people are just like, well, that's what worked in the past. So I think that sort of more than anything, it just talks about the trends that are that are going on at the moment and sort of 
that Hollywood just likes to replicate those trends because it, it sort of it, it likes built in success. I think that and then sort of all it takes a lot of the time is just one person to say, well, I want to do something different. And then Hollywood, you know, famously just chases that person who did the different thing. You know, I think we've seen it a lot with, and recently we've seen it with, uh, I think Jordan Peele kind of changed what was trendy in, in Hollywood with Get Out. And then you saw everybody was sort of making genre films that felt like they were sort of like talking about social justice issues as well. So yeah, I, I don't know necessarily that, that the kinds of movies that are being made right now speak directly to the American experience. Maybe it does, but I think that that would be, that's probably like a college thesis that I would need a lot more time to research before <laughs> I spoke about it. Yeah, Hollywood's not big on saying, you know, let's do something really different right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Although they want to, but they kind of don't have, like, at least the financial guts to do, to Never. do so. Never. But to your point, though, I think that what the film comments on um, and what Cord and Percival Everett's target was, it seems, Percival Everett, who wrote the novel Erasure that uh, Cord adapted, I, I, I think there's, uh, there's an aspiration toward a type of freedom, uh, freedom to express whatever the peculiarities are of the individual, uh, in this instance, you know, this black individual and in our character Monk, desires... Uh, to uh, undo the, the the shackles of precedent and to be free. And that does speak, I think, to an evolution from Sidney Poitier, mm -hmm. where Sidney, who I actually had the privilege, and it was an absolute privilege of working with very early on in my career, he was the most gracious, generous man. And he was also... He was suited to what he was doing because he had kind of, and I hate this word particularly in this country, but he had a natural regality to him. And I rarely use that word about someone, but he just had this stateliness about him that was what was necessary for the time. At the same time, I think he was, um, he was limited because of that in being flawed. There wasn't room for that. There wasn't room for his warts. And that's a pretty heavy burden to, to, to carry, but he did it gracefully and beautifully. But we now, because of the work that he did and all the work that followed and the work, for example, that Leslie Uggams did and the things that she endured, we, I think, have the have a, a, a freedom, a greater freedom. And I think the desire is to Let's express through that, through that freedom. And that's, let's not be limited uh, and let's not limit ourselves. And I think that's what this character uh, is, 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 is trying at, too. But that said, so I'll say one more point just about the history of cinema. If you go back even further, the beginning of black representation on film is Burt Williams, mm -hmm who I absolutely adore. We had a screening in Washington the other day at the Smithsonian Museum of African-American History, and I walked up prior to this Q&A following the screening, and there was an exhibit, and Burt Williams was there, and he's, I just, I, I love this man. He's like a North Star for me. I mean, he's the beginning where he's in blackface, but what he's doing is a kind of caricature of minstrelsy. Mm -hmm. He's is a kind of self-aware 
uh, commentary on the absurdity of what he's forced to do. I mean, he's, that's the start, not only for black representation on film, but in some ways he's the beginning of, for, uh, he's the first film star or certainly one of the early film stars of any background. He's, he's, he's years before Chaplin. And in fact, Chaplin seems probably to have borrowed some, uh, some pieces from one of his characters to create the little tramp. It looks like it. W.C. Field said he was the funniest man I ever knew. Uh, rather, he was the funniest man I ever saw and the saddest man I ever met. And sad probably because he was confined to this thing that was in so incredibly dehumanizing and degrading. So we come from that yeah. to here. But at the same time, our story and the moderator of this Q&A I was speaking with after the day made this connection between Burt Williams and Monk's Dilemma in this, mm-hmm. which I which I found really fascinating. And I have to say, I had not considered it. So in some ways, we, we, we evolved to, to, to devolve back to the beginning. But I think in terms of the self-awareness, I hope we match him in terms of being in control of our choices, because he was an absolute, I think, absolute genius. And if you listen to the lyrics of some of this music, oh, my God. So, yeah, we come from a long, long tradition, as long as anyone's in, in cinema. And, uh, and I think they've earned our freedom. Mm-hmm. That's a really good way of putting it. I mean, one thing that does seem consistent, because, you know, I spend a lot of time reading interviews with various, you know, African and and African-American figures in cinema, is that there's this over tendency to make everything, interpret everything like it's a biopic. Mm. Um, And like that's something that comes up in the film as well. It's not enough that he produced this. It's like that actually this has to be born of your like lived trauma. And in a way that sort of, you think that like undermines art in the way that we, you know, that that's the assumption. Yeah, well there are aspects of this were certainly autobiographical. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Yeah, this was this is this was very much lived real experience for both Jeffrey and I. Uh this film, but but so again, this is this is I think that yes, there's a uh there's a reality to that, but I think that sort of the the reasoning behind that again is sort of is is better left to these people's psychotherapists, you know. I don't know why. I think that that is true. I remember reading years ago this interview with this band that I liked. It was this uh, this white band, and uh, they played rock and roll music, and, and they were being interviewed about rap music because they were sort of they were from Atlanta, I believe, and and they were being asked about the kind of rap music that they liked. And from the Atlanta area, and one of them said, you know, I, I just like really sort of like ratchet. Like I, he was like, I don't like like conscious rap. I like really sort of like ratchet, like hood, like drug dealing kind of. That's that's the kind of music that I was into, that I'm into. And I remember thinking, like, oh, what is what a strange thing to admit on the road. What is a strange thing to just even say, right? What a strange thing to say that 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 is the sort of like most intriguing aspect of this art form to you is sort of people who you think are like especially dangerous and involved in crime. That sort of like aspirational other side of rap, sort of like that, you know, like I would say that the Jay Z is about buying expensive art and real estate and stuff that he prefers sort of like the the stuff that stays stays away from that and stays with like so sort of like the drugs and crime and poverty and stuff and so i do think that there is we can see sort of like in society elements of this this there's a, a 
forgive me for like butchering this term, but the, I, I didn't. I didn't ever take French, but I've, I'm familiar with this term, nostalgie de la boue, I believe it's, mm-hmm. which means nostalgia for the mud. This kind of like attraction to sort of like the, what's like the gritty and grimy. For whatever reason, I think that, you know, I think that there's always been this idea that hanging out with black people gives you some sort of semblance of, of like uh, street cred, that it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's a little dangerous to be with these people. And so that's appealing to me. And so again, I, I don't know what the psychology is behind that. I think it's sort of like better served to to ask those people why that that is intriguing to them. But I absolutely think that that is that 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 exists. That that sort of attraction to this kind of degradation is sort of something that that excites people. Certainly, do you think there's still kind of this idea that that's the most authentic way to? to... Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think that that's that's a lot of what the movie speaks to. You know, I think that there's this. One of the things that I really wanted to get into that's in the novel that we couldn't get into in the film is there's this great there's these great flashbacks in the in the book and and one of the one of the flashbacks delves into the class distinctions within Monk's own family right and so so Monk's father comes from this kind of like upper middle class stock where it's like he's his great grandfather was a doctor and his grandfather you know it's just this lineage of sort of success and education and sort of professional careers. And then his mother came from a very working class background, and there's this great scene where from Virginia, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's this great My scene mom. where, yeah, there's this great scene where where they uh, there's a family gathering, and Monk can see his mother his mother's shame at her family, her children, and her husband seeing the family that she came from, mm-hmm. and sort of like that. The, 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 she's she's raised, she's married this doctor and their children are well-educated and now they're hanging out sort of like with this black working class family and, and you can see that she's a little embarrassed by these people but she's well-educated yes the mother exactly yeah, and, I, like- and i loved that because it's like because i think that you know i think that's something that people very frequently don't think about you know the fact that there is class diversity within the african-american experience that's sort of like there are just the same way that there's class hierarchy in in every group there's class hierarchies in in black Americans too. And I think that uh, this idea that um, every black American, I think that that's sort of a strange notion to people. I think that there's, there's this idea that every black American comes from being on welfare and food stamps and, you know, that, that, you know, our single parent households, like all of these things that people assume as being, I'll tell you a perfect example. A perfect example of this is, is the uh, another, this is, this is, and this is a scene that I put into the movie at first, when I when I was doing flashback scenes, and this one was one that wasn't in the book, but it was from t- taken directly from my experience. I was talking to this woman one night in college. I was probably about a junior, and she had just transferred from Ole Miss and sort of like deep in Mississippi to to my college, which was in the South, but not not as deep a South. And was talking to her, and I said, you know, how was she was a white woman, and I said, you know, how was the uh, was the racism down there? You know, it's uh, I've I've never really spent a lot of time in Mississippi. Was it was it is it bad down there? And she said, you know, she said it's 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 sort of bad, but she said, you know, it's it's not as bad as you might think. And she and she'd say, and like plus, like you, you what do you care? Like you're not really black. <laughs> and I said, and I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, listen to how you talk. Look at how you dress. Like you're not black, you know. And I think that that was that was a thing that I had never been said to me before until then. But I'm, I'm sure it was something that people had thought about me before, but it just never sort of like been brazen enough to say to my face, which is that black in their minds is a sort of very, very 
specifically defined thing. And it's, and it's, you know, it is this, it's single parent households, it's project homes, it's not educated. It is a very specific, rigid, defined perspective of what life looks like, which is sort of, you know, one of the main themes of this movie. And so I do think that there is, yeah, I I do think that there is this very rigidly defined idea of what blackness looks like in many, many people's minds, you know, in many white people's minds. It's, there isn't a diversity there. There is no diversity within the diversity. It's just, well, you're not really, and if you don't fit that specific idea of what it means to be black, then it's like, you're not really black. You know, you're not, you're not a black person because you don't have these characteristics that I, that I, that I imagine as being black characteristics. Does that make sense? I think if there was a consensus among the collective you know, of quote unquote whites in America. That's, that's the, that's the definition. Yeah. But I think too, that that definition has unfortunately been internalized as well Mm -hmm. by some within the black, the the black community. Um, I think we, so, and for that reason, I think our film is not, it's not limited to a discussion around the publishing world. It's about larger uh, messaging around representation, identity, and race. Um, If we look at, you know, look at the state of music in America and the messaging that's put out about what's real and what's authentic and is popularized. I mean, it's this idea of, of blackness and masculinity that frankly is, is kind of, is a bit disturbing, you know? And I think more so, I think, is undermining and somewhat poisonous because it's embraced the limitations and embraced the hopelessness as being a badge of honor. That seems like a dangerous combination. It seems uh, harmful both to the self and to the listener, I think. So I, I don't think it's, you know, and I think the film discusses this. Absolutely. The, the ways in which, you know, this is... Um, cross-pollinated many different demographics. One of the things that I think, I'm sorry, we're gonna, you've only asked a couple of questions. And I, we're, we're, just, we're just talking and talking. Okay. One of the things that I think is, is, is that, so in the title, it's, it's in the title, American fiction, it's, it's sort of this, this fiction, sort of the intention, obviously it's, it's a pun and it's layered, but you know, race is both real and not real. Right. And it's, a, it's sort of the vast majority of scientists will tell you that our, biological differences are negligible, that these things that we think of as being race are just sort of like totally meaningless and that we're all the same. And yet we've constructed our world in such a way that race is real. We've sort of like treated it as real in our institutions and in our countries, right? These are we so so it's both real and not real, and there's an inherent absurdity in that. And 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 the problem is is that what we're I think we're sort of talking around and getting at is that everybody trying to make sense of that it all ends up a mess. Mm. You know, no matter who you are, mm. trying to make sense of this thing that is not real and sort of like trying to make it real and trying to think about it in real terms mm. is is useless because there is no reality to it. And so, what we're talking about here is just this kind of like grasping in the dark mm. for this idea that like we can make this real. Well, if, if I sort of listen to this kind of music or if I dress this kind of way or or if you speak this kind of way or if you live this kind of life and that then that makes it real. But it's it's not real. None of it is real. And so so I th- just think that what we're talking about here is people of all different kinds looking for ways to make this real because we've structured the world in such a way that says it is. 
And so all of us are like, well, we have to we have to sort of figure out the parameters of it then. If it is real, like where does it begin and where does it end? Mm. You know, how can I sort of like make it concrete? Because human beings are not good at the idea that like this isn't real, you know, and then the idea that there's this is complex and nuanced and you can't really define it. Well, you know? the, the way to understand it is to accept the limitations of it mm-hmm. and, and to em- embrace the impurity of it. And yeah. then you can begin to make sense of it. But in, if you're insistent on this purity, then you get into a little trouble. Going back to the the, the, the thing that I was, was, I remember the first time I went to uh, Ghana. I, uh, I think we were there filming Ali. Yeah, it was the first time I went to Ghana. And I went, had a day off. I went to this market, you know, looking for drums and whatever, and looking for stuff. And I... You know, I went into the stall with this guy. He had some, I don't know what he was selling. I, I think they were drums and maybe, you know, some, you know, carvings and stuff like this. And he was young. He probably was, I don't know, in his early 20s, mid 20s. And he called me nigga. And it blew my <laughs> lid. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> it just jacked me up, man. I was like, ow. And it's like, I hear what you're saying. I understand where you imported that from. Yeah. You don't quite have a handle <laughs> on, like, the wheel, you know, on the on the uh, the handlebars of that word. Yeah. <laughs> if if anyone, and then I, you know, it was just it it was it was just it was just brutal, man. Yeah. And I thought, damn, is is this what we're exporting now? You know. But I and think- then he went on to have a conversation about Tupac not being dead and all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but and this was like in two thousand one or whatever. But. uh yeah, I mean, but know, I think looking, I understand where you're coming from, as sort of like about board. about the sort of like the sting of that. But I would say that I think that there's something something that like is where I would sort of like look for the silver lining in that and find the beauty of that is that I do think that for all for whatever its flaws are, I think that the dominance of black culture in America, yeah, and sort of like by extension of that, the sort of dominance of American culture around the world. And the way that we then sort of like export black American culture is meaningful to the diaspora yes. in many ways, right? Yes. And obviously in Africa, you're not talking about necessarily the diaspora, right? That's sort of like, right. but, but, to but, the but yeah, exactly. But, but it is meaningful to sort of like black peoples around the world. Yes. Sort of like that kind of like connection of like, oh, rap music. Like sure. I derive, I derive power from the success of rap music, right? Because this is a, this is a music that is made by people who look like me. And those are some of the most powerful people in the most powerful country in the world. Yeah. Right? Like that is where I, I'm saying, no, that's where he's coming from. No probably, question. Right? No yeah, question. Yeah about it and of yeah. course I, I i've used the word myself yeah in numbers that are, are not to be calculated <laughs> and i you know but yeah maybe it was even just that yeah of course dude you, your inflection is not quite <laughs> how you manage that thing and but then maybe i thought well you know reconsidered my own usage of it as well but you're absolutely right I, when I worked on this film, OG, which we shot in a uh, maximum security prison in Indiana, largely incarcerated men in the in the movie, you know, as my co-stars, it was an incredible experience. It was heavy, but it was really 
it was it was it was really worth it. But I would talk to the guys about everything. But but one of them was talking about Jay Z one day, and he had such an admiration and respect for what Jay-Z had done, that it meant something so personal to him that he had been able to overcome the obstacles and the difficulties and the trauma of the projects to get to where he was. It, and it, it gave me a, 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 a new perspective. It gave me a new, you know, heightened appreciation. Man, it was, it was, really, it was really pretty moving. I was like, because I'm sitting here in this prison, you know, where he is, but for him, that was a window out. Jay-Z's words, Jay-Z's music, Jay-Z's poetry, Jay-Z's vision. I was like, wow, yeah. there's, something, there's something extremely powerful there. This is not your normal, <laughs> I think, press interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I wish I could get into it because I grew up in Africa. And we really? Very outward. Yeah, I lived in Sudan until I was 16. So. We gotta, we, come on, we got to bring so it home a little better than that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There got to be a coda. <laughs> thank you so much. I, Are you going to provide the coda then? So, Campbell I feel when people tell me that there is going to be a hilarious new comedy, um, I inevitably hate it. But I actually found this absolutely hilarious. I mean, did, were you kind of tickled by it? Yeah, tickled is a good word for it, I guess. I took my brother to see this one with me, who I think in the past couple of years, he's become a very good film watcher in that he is quite adventurous in what he goes to see. He goes to see a lot of stuff by himself. He went to see, he got, I remember him getting drunk at a pub and he just sent me a text afterwards just being like, I'm going to see Broker at the BFI. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Like, mind you, this is a guy who just like, who till recently didn't watch like a lot of like what you'd say, I don't know, art house movies that don't like that word but that's the only description i can think of now anyway i took him to that and we had a really good time it's just a generally pleasant film i think like it's got a lot of really great gags in it a lot of the framing i found very funny even if i thought the actual photography was a bit plain but there's still moments like there's one in the trailer where monk is jeffrey wright's character is standing in disbelief at this book reading where um Issa Rae's character is just like rattling off these awful this awful awful dialogue and he's just standing there in disbelief and this white woman stands up right in front of him and just starts applauding which i suppose is uh something like the uh oscars reaction to this to a degree i found it funny i guess it's more kind of i guess at least trying to like parody more like the reactions to something like what was it called push a novel by sapphire something that had kind of a strange title that like yeah sort of tales of terrible woe i mean don't know if you watch 30 rock but there's a tracy morgan's character at one point stars and wins an oscar for a film called hard to watch <laughs> all about um you know the, ter- the the terrible trials and tribulations of i believe like a disabled black man who you know just goes through a lot of traumatic things and uh, yeah, there certainly is a black trauma has certainly been rewarded, I would say, over the past couple of decades. It's strange thinking of it as something that has a market now under the sort of umbrella of representation in film. Funnily enough, I thought Jordan Peele's Nope really kind of got at the impulse behind that, where you have these two characters basically trying to sell any kind of story. And then at the fringes, you have Stephen Young's character who's just been selling his own like personal tragedy for years and like kind of living off that. And it's just a very interesting look at how the industry prioritizes that for minorities. And that's the film industry. I don't know anything about the book industry. 
but um, American Fiction feels like a very interesting peek into a cli- the climate in the 2000s, which is both something that I found entertaining, but also maybe a little bit restrictive in what its satire is actually saying, because it feels like a little bit old. <laughs> the fil- In the moment, I think the film is really funny, but I think that it also can, in retrospect... I'm already like seeding the ground for the scores later. I found that maybe it's in fact a little bit defanged. I think there's definitely some areas where it could have stuck the knife in a little more. I don't know. Christina, what do you think? Yeah, I kind of agree with you that it is really funny. And I I mean, Jeffrey Wright's great in it as well, which really helps. He's got this kind of um, a slightly repressed thing going on. And um, you can just kind of see everything percolating behind his eyes. And this, this frustration and this act of kind of rage and frustration and uh, the fact that it kind of weirdly backfires on him. I just recently was working on a project about the original producers, which has a similar sting in it, just this idea that, you know, somebody from, you know, a non-white background is going to like come in and and sort of take the piss and then white audiences are going to lap it up and love it. And that's the, that kind of is the twist. And um, that is still a really useful metaphor and still a really useful target of satire I think and that's that's what this film's doing so well but I also agree that it I think for like people in media or the arts it probably speaks a bit more to us but like I think I think maybe to people who aren't in publishing or the arts generally they, it might feel a little bit like yeah that's that yeah that's that particular niche kind of thing like it's not widespread it's not kind of widespread enough yeah I mean I can see that because almost what he's sending up does seem to be I mean it's based on a novel that I believe is like 20 years old that perhaps that kind of era of you know that you had to play an enslaved person in order to get an Oscar nomination or you know that everybody was so concerned with all of these white saviors does seem a thing of the past but then I did see this the same week that I saw Ava DuVernay's origin so I'm not like entirely convinced that we're not still trying to kind of prove that like in order for a story to be powerful it has to just involve endless suffering for minorities i I also think though that the stories that are in this are like it's a little bit of a different tone if that makes sense the book that he writes it feels like a send-up of like i don't know like 90s gangster films or tragedies like boys in the hood and that sort of ilk rather than something explicitly like origin i feel like maybe there is a keener target in films that rest on the sort of simple praise of representation as like a aspiration rather than like a baseline requirement and i feel like that might have been a more appropriate target for this film because it's being released in a very different environment where people are generally, like you said, people are generally more accepting of a variance of black stories. And I just like, I wonder if there was a satire in this that is talking about like the exploitation of that hunger for new stories. Because like you have that moment with um, Adam Brody where he is sort of trying to, he's not like entirely exploitative, but he's cynical, I think. And he's just kind of jumping on the ability to make something out of Monk's book. And I felt like they had something there, but maybe for the rest of the sort of white industry characters that they have in this, they, they some of them felt so cartoonish that to me, it feels like distancing. So a lot of it feels quite safe for like a white audience to come in and like kind of yuck it up at them and just be like i'm not like this and (laughs) move on um which is where sort of my doubts about the film begun to creep in 
I think it's a very fine line to walk between making like a satire that is actually like cutting and one that just becomes so parodic that the intended targets kind of feel comfortable. Safe. Yeah, that makes sense. But I gave it a four in Empire. So (laughs) (laughs) I also think, you know, some of its first time director stuff as well. Like you say, Cam, it's it is a bit visually flat. It's so focused on get, you know, it's gags, I think. And, Mm. you know, it's performances. It has some really nice supporting performances. Tracy Ellis Ross is his sister. Like, you know, it's it's got a lot of color in the performances and the characters. Like they're quite well fleshed out, but it doesn't really have much going for it as, you know, it could be television, to be honest. It doesn't feel particularly cinematic so that's kind of that's kind of an issue i think i felt the same yeah i think it's just the writing or the character writing does a lot of heavy lifting for it like you said the performance is like kind of i mean jeffrey wright carries this thing on his back (laughs) like he's so compelling to watch just sort of uh whether he's being like curmudgeonly or actually like coming out of his shell a little bit yeah i don't i definitely didn't feel like visually engaged the rest of the time i don't remember what the score sounded like i mainly been nominated for best score (laughs) news to me um, <laughs> but like yeah i don't know like aesthetically i didn't find anything that memorable about it i think where it kind of stands up is in the jokes and the delivery of those jokes but then even then i'm like i feel like it felt like it was maybe not holding back or maybe it was i don't know it could have been meaner because from what i know about erasure it sounds like a very unsparing book uh, from what i know in the middle in its entirety it has the fake novel that uh, monk writes it just has my pathology later retitled to fuck just like dropped right in the middle of the book <laughs> and just makes you sit through all of these like awful cliches to really like drive the point home and i feel like maybe the film could have done with being a little bit more mean-spirited in that sense like just needed a little bit more bite i know what you mean but to a degree i think the film needs monk to not have the answers because essentially what he's pushing for is a return to this respectable black story of the Sydney Poitier era of the Cosby show before we learned what was going on there. And like there is this idea that black stories also have to perform in order to make you like them by almost like being so unimpeachable that we can only, you know, he can only produce things that are so much higher brow than his white colleagues who are writing books that sell well in airports are doing. And I don't know that that's something that like the film suggests is the ultimate goal. Yeah, I don't know. I'm back and forth on this one because like I think I said before, like I feel like I responded to it really well at the time. And just like the more I think about it, that's just like the more I wish it had a little bit more to say about that sort of thing. I think the uncertainty is important. Like, there's the w- strange meta bit towards the film's end where it's sort of figuring out what an ideal version of this story looks like. But I don't know. It's been 20 years since the book. I feel like this is the kind of room you have to maybe definitively say something. <laughs> I do. I did like the visual of the cops coming in, though. That was quite funny. Yeah, I mean, I agree yeah. that I mean, in, in the viewing... very funny. Yeah, in the viewing, you it's it's sort of a whale of a time, isn't it? You do have a really good time with it. It's just like the... You do wonder about the staying power, you know, in terms of the specifics of what it's trying to get across. Maybe I was always uh, geared against it because whenever something has American in the title, I kind of just go, ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> not, a sli- not a slight on our favourite American... Ooh, yeah, but maybe a slight a... dig at uh, America Ferreira's Best Supporting Actress nomination. I don't know. <laughs> oh, bless Titles her. Titles of movies. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I have to say I really enjoyed it. I know what you mean about like the nastier version of it. And I think in some ways, Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You touches on a lot of similar things down to in some ways quite a similar ending um, in a way that is very interesting, but and is but is more kind of centered on her as a character than like the industry itself. So I thought taking kind of a step away, not kind of luxuriating in Monk's trauma and skewering the industry itself was way more fun. And in a I May Destroy You world, I don't know that I needed this to kind of take a similar tone to it. I mean, I'm always for someone putting the screws to Hollywood. So at the same time, <laughs> I did I did kind of appreciate the warmth of his family story that was unfolding at the side. I thought I thought Sterling K. Brown was really great. Someone said this, someone said this to me the other day where I'd forgotten about it and then someone reminded me of the gag where he just appears more shirtless in like every, every subsequent scene and then um his the relationship with his sister I thought was really it felt very natural blanking on the actress's name Tracy Ellis Ross Yes yeah she was great Yeah there is something to be said about the ensemble cast in this film you know but like you say the family backstory a lot of the times with films like this especially when they're kind of very pointed in a satirical way the backstory, the family stuff feels like like it's just thrown in. But this doesn't really feel like that. I think it does have to feel quite organic. It's like an essential contrast because, you know, it's yeah, it's in the film's presentation. It's like uh, the stories we don't usually get for like black audiences, which isn't which the thing is, it's like that's that's less true now than maybe it would be at the time of the book's creation. But maybe it isn't sure. because I don't know, like uh, the like Color Baylor Purple said, musical just came out. Yeah, <laughs> not to uh, you know a, a person changes after they see a chain gang tap dancing uh, <sighs> I didn't um, know that was so, what it was like wow mm-hmm. yeah no I haven't seen it either oh my god call me uh, once you have <laughs> ook, wow. uh, but we should get some scores on this Campbell do you want to start in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect in anticipation three because I'd only seen Cord Jefferson's work on TV before uh, he wrote a very good episode of Watchmen I think a show that is great but also shouldn't exist so it's a very interesting contradiction there as well enjoyment four because I laughed a lot I had a great time I enjoyed the performances even if uh, some of the stuff around them wasn't like fully there yet uh, and then in retrospect three because I feel like my doubts about it have started to take over I think I just kind of found myself more unsatisfied with what I saw no one from Empire listened to this <laughs> Christina what about you well the contributing editor is here <laughs> No snitching. <laughs> That's okay. I don't rat. It's fine. I guess I'd say anticipation. I I really laughed at the trailer, but I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of Cord, of Cord Jefferson until I like looked him up and then realized he'd written on succession and stuff. So I guess I'd say like a three. Um, enjoyment four, for sure. I had a really good time with it as well. And then I guess I'd say I'm sort of, I'm sort of going back and forth between three and four on this one. But I think Jeffrey Wright's performance, like overall, I think it did work for me quite well in spite of my, my doubts. And yeah, I guess I go for a four. I would, I would broadly recommend that people go see it. So Uh, yeah, I think I'm four across the boards. I love Jeffrey Wright. I got so upset when he didn't get a nomination for the French Dispatch. Not that that's the be all and end all of, uh, you know, achievement. But yeah, when I heard that this had kind of had gotten a really good reception at TIFF, I was very excited to see it, even though I'm rarely on the same page as people when it comes to comedy. And I just, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was clever. And sure, agreed that it's it's not terribly subtle. But yeah, I had a great time. And I've, I've recommended this to friends that like art house and my dad, which 
it's, a, it's about kind of the, the ultimate barometer spectrum yeah <laughs> yeah the ultimate barometer i suppose but next up yeah another film which uh, skewers hollywood and arguably has some some issues with the visuals but yeah let's get into bamboozled Pierre Delacroix is an Ivy League-educated black writer at a major network. Frustrated that his ideas have been rejected by the network brask, he devises an outlandish scheme, reviving the minstrel show. But instead of having white actors in blackface, the new millennium minstrels will start with black actors in even blacker face. The show becomes an instant smash, but with the success also comes repercussions. So, Campbellet. I mean, Spike Lee, ahead of his time, would you say? This is now 24 years ago since Bamboozled came out and the critics hated it. (laughs) Absolutely. I think I've been talked into enjoying the mini DV video aspect of it all. But as far as everything else is concerned, maybe the sharpest film he's ever made. Uh, He has a tendency to get into sort of video essay-ish montages of archive footage in a lot of his films whenever he wants to really put a fine point on what he's saying but i think it's never been more effective than it has been here because you'll spend this entire film watching this utterly ludicrous minstrelsy and then by the end he just like really just like drives it in by saying like oh yeah and here's all the real stuff <laughs> uh and ashton kutcher in what what what, uh, what was that? It was a it was a like pop chips commercial. I mean, maybe not like specifically pop chips, but it was like I think, yeah, they were like crisps of different flavors from different nationalities. So he would dress up as each different yes um, nationality oh, for man. the ad campaign. But yes, little uh, accent and all. <laughs> this is yeah under underrated in its time, I suppose. Uh, this one, but it's gotten it definitely gotten its flowers since it got a Criterion release. The incredible Ashley Clark wrote a very good book about it. Watching American Fiction made me appreciate Bamboozled all the more, where it's funny because Damon Wayans' character, uh, Pierre, is trying to make the same kind of fiction that Jeffrey Wright's character is kind of living out, and then you have uh, Michael Rappaport just being insanely racist and just being like, no, we should make gritty stuff like my pathology, I guess. So yeah, it was just, it felt very strongly connected to that. And I'm just like, I remember when I first watched this and I was just like, man, they probably just turned the camera on on Michael Rappaport and let him go because I'm just like, I absolutely feel like he's just like that in his personal life. <laughs> I, I did suspect it's like a bit like when I watched Starship Troopers again with Casper Van Diem and Denise Richards, where and Michael Rappaport in this, that I don't know that they know that they're in a satire, which is like very much the feeling I got from him. Yeah, he's a, he's a piece of work in real life and I kind of carried that with me into bamboozled (laughs) i'd actually already only seen him in justified he turns up as this kind of head of a criminal gang that operates out of a swamp in the south and he's terrible seems right seems right (laughs) (laughs) but in this i was just like oh it's it's such pitch perfect casting because he's so obnoxious but you get the feeling you always get the feeling from him that he's someone who uh want who like wants in on black culture if that makes sense that sort of is envious of it but then like uses his access uh was it like he's because he's because he's married to a black woman so he's just like oh yeah like i can say whatever i want as he is in real life (laughs) (laughs) just saying i'm gonna add allegedly so i don't get uh (laughs) sued (laughs) yeah well i I mean, if anything, it's a great compliment to him if uh, if, if not, because he really disappeared into the role in a way that, like, I suppose, like Adam Brody in American Fiction, though I think he was very funny, is clearly, like, doing a bit. Yeah. 
like Rappaport, you kind of believe is like truly scuzzy. But I suppose like the kind of polish of Brody's character is the point where he's like this very like preening rich boy. Whereas uh, I don't know, you get this sort of New York scumbaggery from <laughs> Rappaport a bit. Yeah, and me, Christina, Spike Lee, often accused of um, underserving his female characters. I adore this film, but I mean, what how, do you think he kind of did that a little bit with this? We've kind of got Jada Pinkett Smith as. I suppose our moral compass. Yeah, and I think I mean it. It is giving it is giving her a bit of room uh, to you know. I think we do get a good performance out of her, but it is guilty of a thing that I think just so many films are guilty of. It's certainly not just Spike Lee, where the woman becomes the kind of the the one who speaks sense, the one who becomes like the the, the island of calm amidst the insanity. And so that kind of sometimes doesn't allow actresses to have as much fun as the as the actors are having. And it sort of limits women down to being kind of quite safe and sensible. So you, I guess maybe there's a bit of that. But overall, I think I feel like um, this is probably one of his better films where women are concerned. Oh, yeah, I think it's my favorite. It's quite prophetic in so many ways. It's both speaking kind of to its time, but also so much to the different iterations of how a version of, of this kind of white obsession with being as Cam said, like in on black culture or kind of wanting to feel like they're like aware of what's going on in a way that makes them kind of au fait with contemporary stuff. And that's, that could be like something like Warren Beatty and Bullworth, which is a quite an extreme satirical example and it's doing something else as well. But um, yeah, I think there's just something about this film that continues to be relevant, regardless of whether we're talking about kind of the 90s gangster films or whether we're talking about kind of obsession with black trauma, whether we're talking about stuff like Precious, like th- there's always a kind of new version of of that, but it's it's this evolving thing. Um, I mean, it does seem to have like very much been established as being a really excellent film um, in the present day. If I do hear criticisms of it, it does tend to be people saying like, oh, it was great, but I just thought it was hideous. I mean, what did you think of the, the look of it? When I first saw it, I detested the mini dv video but i think in my mind i've kind of slowly become convinced by it it sort of feels like um maybe like the low budget the nature of it fits the sort of in the office the office politics and i don't know there's a sense that you watch this film and you kind of it feels like you've picked it up from somewhere you know like you've dug it up and that maybe speaks to its engagement with like a long history of cultural like exploitation of black people i think yeah it's it's strange because i don't think i would opt into more mini dv shot (laughs) films but i think in this case it's a very daring choice that i think with some thought does pay off it's that thing where it's um not necessarily pleasant to look at but i kind of i think it creatively enhances it it was it's definitely a very interesting swerve and also cheap as hell like i'm reading it like they kept the budget to 10 million it it does look it does look shoddy like it i you'd be hard put to say it's pleasant to look at but it kind of suits the subject matter it's ugly you know there's something ugly about all of it and um i think it's meant to be and it's meant to be a challenging and unpleasant watch how intentional all of that is in terms of the aesthetic who's to say but like it works whether that's you know conscious or not I guess the most generous interpretation is like right from the beginning, Spike Lee is establishing that he's not, he, it's like his own lens, I suppose. Like this isn't going to look like the type of black film that you've been asking for, like the type of black art that you have decided isn't enjoyable for you to consume. Yeah. 
And I mean, it would make it would make a really incredible double bill with um, which I mean, this film doesn't look like that. It's much more traditionally shot. Um, Robert Townsend's Hollywood Shuffle, mm, um, yeah. which is, you know, equally about kind of trying to fit blackness into the into the prescribed white categories of what uh, white executives in Hollywood think is is saleable and commercial and the kind of contortions one must make in that scenario. Robert Townsend plays a black filmmaker in it. And yeah, it would be a really great double bill with this because they're both so much about about that kind of how much can you bend before you break and then just taking the really taking the piss out of out of the entire gambit. Oh yeah. No god, I do need to rewatch Hollywood Shuffle. That is a brilliant one. Triple bill with uh with American yeah, fiction. There you I go. Think. Um so many okay. things change and so many stay the same. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's a depressing note to end on on it's particularly for Perfect. a show where we've gotten into the Holocaust. Yes, let's let's end on a nicer note with uh, the one last thing that we do where you guys are going to give us some non-movie recommendations. Christina, do you want to go first? What's your non-movie that you suggest people seek out this week? Well, I completely forgot that we do this. So going right off the top of my head by looking immediately to my left, uh, I'm reading... American Tabloid, sorry, Campbellet, that has American in the title as well, uh, which is a really incredible James Elroy novel. Um, it has absolutely no relevance to anything we've been talking about or any real contemporary re- relevance either to anything that's going on. It's set in the late 50s and early 60s, right before the JFK assassination, and uh, focuses on a series of double agents for the CIA, the FBI, and um, the mob and Howard Hughes, who are all um, working in cahoots to either uh, sort of get JFK to be president or to stop that from happening. So it's told from like a a triptych point of view from three characters. And it is incredible and hard-boiled and nasty and violent. Uh, and, And yeah, I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. I have to say, coming into this, I thought I could guess what yours was going to be. And I was sure it was going to be the new Christabel Balenciaga series, (laughs) The Witches. Gorgeous. I haven't watched it, but thank you for the recommendation. Oh, okay. Technically, I don't do one. But uh, so, yeah, listeners about your ears, I didn't recommend that to you. I recommended it to them (laughs) as per my remit. Camberley, what about you? What's your non-movie recommendation? I was also frantically looking over my shoulder just because like, oh, man, I forgot about my recommendations i maybe have i have a less literary thing uh i read a lot of comic books there's one that i have just behind me called 20th century men and it's this strange like alt history that's basically if a superhero comic was about western interventionism in the middle east (laughs) and it has these kind of like (laughs) (laughs) no not quite but (laughs) i get what you i get i get that comparison i know it's about like kind of this sort of cold war clash of the u.s and russia but via sort of superheroic figureheads so there's like a guy in a big a russian guy in a big robot suit who's become like the head of the russian military and an old american soldier who's become president and it's all very cynical in his presentation of just like this flag waving guy it's really good it's got this beautiful artwork which kind of you know usually when you're reading a comic book everything's sort of segmented into panels like a lot of instead a lot of this just kind of flows so there's no not always a defined break in different sequences so the art just kind of carries on across the page and it's all done these sort of a lot of it's quite mixed in terms of methods so there's lots of different kind of like brushwork and pencils and all sorts of things it's like almost like this one big collage which is i don't know really astonishing to look at so i don't know it might be a bit esoteric 
for people who don't already read comic books but so i suppose that would be my recommendation my other one is uh watch aew wrestling <laughs> it's on itv weekly it's really good <laughs> yeah i'm gonna stick with the balenciaga i must say but <laughs> but thank you very much for your recommendations no that that actually does sound brilliant i'm uh, just like I've, saying to everyone i've, just moved and I've now for. got yes yeah i feel like it was extremely on brand for me to recommend a noir uh novel and for cam to recommend a graphic novel that's yeah that feels right. We're blowing minds. <laughs> but yes, but thank you both so very much. I mean, like, we, I love it when you stay on brand because these are, these are top tier brands. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, we've got an incredible lineup, even if I do say so myself. Steve McQueen returns with his epic documentary, Occupied City, and I spoke to the director and his wife and collaborator, Bianca Stigler. Zac Efron faces unspeakable tragedy in Sean Durkin's look at the cursed Von Elric wrestling family in The Iron Claw. I also interviewed Aubrey Gordon and Jeannie Findlay about their powerful new documentary, Your Fat Friend. And for Film Club, there's more tragedy and more wrestling in Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Christina Newland and Campbell A. Campbell. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.